There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. This episode of Luke's English Podcast is all about the life and work of David Bowie, who died just a couple of days ago. Bowie was an English singer, songwriter, record producer, painter, and actor. He was a figure in popular music for over five decades and was considered by people around the world as a cultural innovator, particularly for his work in the 1970s. I'm a big David Bowie fan, and in this podcast, my aim is to explain to you the appeal and significance of David Bowie as a cultural icon. Um, I've had a few messages from listeners all over the world uh, the, the last couple of days asking me to talk about this subject, and I'm very happy to be able to do that um, on my podcast. Um, this subject is significant to me personally, and I expect to many of you too, but it's also uh, a very significant subject in British culture in general, and I think it's important to teach you about British culture or English language culture on Luke's English Podcast, um, as well as to teach you the language itself, because ultimately it's all part of the same thing. The language exists within the culture, or perhaps the culture exists within within the language, and they're kind of intertwined together in complex ways. So really, to learn the language like a native, I think it helps to know about the culture of that language too. So, um, so that you can start thinking in the same way that native users of that language think too. Also, if you ever talk to native speakers of English, then you'll need to know about the cultural references. For example, at the moment, like right now, and no doubt for a long time afterwards, people will be talking about David Bowie, his music, his art, and its significance. Um, and of course, they'll be talking about music. Uh, music is a very important part of British culture. Um, so, you know, would you be able to hold down a conversation about David Bowie or about British music? Uh, if you were chatting about the subject, would you be able to, you know, keep the conversation going? Well, hopefully this episode will help you to do that by teaching you the basic facts and stuff and also giving you a chance to just hear someone talk about the subject in English. Uh, and obviously I'm talking to you, my audience of, of learners of English with this episode. Um, uh, okay, so David Bowie changed our culture, not just in Britain, but also around the world. Um, how did he do it? Uh, what did he do that was so significant? Why is his death such a big deal? Because it is a big deal. It's in the newspapers. If, if you're in the UK or maybe the USA uh, or, in fact, many other places, you'll notice that uh, there's lots of stuff about David Bowie in the newspapers um, on the Internet. You've probably seen it in your Facebook feed and things like that. I wonder even if, if some of you know who David Bowie is. I expect you fall into, as listeners to this podcast, you probably fall into several possible uh, categories. One of those categories would be you know exactly who he is and you're a big fan like I am. Uh, you might be someone who sort of, you know, you're vaguely aware of him, but you know, you don't know that much, but you know he's kind of a big deal, but you, you're not really sure why 
he's significant and why people seem to be so upset about him uh, and his death. And, uh, and, and maybe you're not a fan, you know, you might be someone who just doesn't really like his music or something like that. Fair enough. Or maybe you're someone who's never, ever heard of David Bowie at all. And I'm sure that's possible because, you know, I have uh, listeners in many different diverse places and I'm not sure exactly how far David Bowie's fame extends into every corner of the world. I think that he's I think he's really quite internationally famous, but uh, there's probably different levels of of knowledge that you have as you're listening to this. Um, So what was his appeal? Why do most people know about David Bowie? Uh, And what do most people know about David Bowie? What did he do during his life? What were the messages that he communicated through his art? Uh, And why will he be considered one of the greatest artists of our time? There are so many questions to answer on this subject. I don't have all the answers, of course. Um, I'm not some kind of David Bowie expert. Um, So some questions will go unanswered. But there are always more questions than answers, aren't there? Um, Again, I don't know how long this episode will be. I've just decided to talk to talk to you about the subject and basically the episode will be as long as it needs to be in order for me to feel like I've covered the subject in some depth okay I I, I hope that you listen to all of it um, I think the world still doesn't fully understand what David Bowie was doing or what it was all about or at least we can't easily put that into words I think David Bowie himself said that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Do you, do you see what that means? That you can't put, you can't really describe music using words in the same way that you couldn't, for example, describe architecture through the medium of dance. You know, it's quite a witty thing, thing to say. You, you, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Ultimately, it, it, it's it's sort of pointless, and that kind of shows the the gap between any description of music and the actual music itself. So, of course, uh, I, I hope that you do listen to his his work and listen to it properly with an open mind. Uh, don't just take my word for it. You need to actually listen to his stuff if you haven't already. Um, so it's hard to put into words, but th- those people who value his work certainly feel a powerful emotional connection to David Bowie and his music. He was an artist, and I suppose that part of the work of an artist is to express ideas and feelings in other ways, not just using words alone, but using anything else as a way of conveying a message or a feeling. David Bowie definitely did that. He used all sorts of different tools to express himself. Not only was he a musician, but he was an artist, and maybe one of the greatest artists of our time. And he used everything he could in order to communicate with us. Music primarily, but also video, theatre, mime, the internet. He was an early adopter of, of the internet. And media in general, his public image, even his own body, his fame uh, and, and his physical image. And ultimately, his, just his identity him, itself. He even used his own death as a way of communicating his art to the world. Uh, David Bowie's whole life turned out to be a work of art itself, and as an artist, he used his life to tell a captivating, uh, mysterious and complex story. Um, So here are the main questions I'm going to try to talk about. So first of all, uh, 
who is David Bowie? Maybe that should be who was David Bowie now. Um, why is he significant? Um, because he still is significant. And why is Bowie significant to me personally? So I'm also going to be telling you a sort of a personal story in order to try and convey what, you know, what my connection is to, to David Bowie. Um, I have to say that this is a really difficult episode for me to do because there's just so much to cover and I want to do justice to the subject. Obviously, I can't say everything I want to say about David Bowie in this episode. I would love you to just listen to his music with an open mind. Listen to the beats, the grooves, the moods, uh, the the songwriting and the lyrics and just let your imagination do the rest. You can find lyrics probably to almost all of his songs online. If you just do a Google search for the name of the song plus the word lyrics, you'll be able to find them. And you can also find lyric meanings and interpretations of, of song lyrics. If you just search for, for example, the name of a song, it could be Space Oddity Lyrics Meaning. If you search for that, uh, you will find pages on the internet that will have explanations and interpretations of uh, of all of the song lyrics, I imagine. So um, listen to his music. Also, he was a great speaker in interviews. Uh, he was articulate, charming and very funny as well. Uh, I'm not going to play you any interview footage or any of his music in this episode, except maybe for a couple of seconds of, of, of a song or two. But I have what I have done is to collect some videos and other links uh, for you to check out on the page for this episode. And I strongly recommend that you do check them out. Uh, there are other documentaries, interviews, podcast episodes and music videos uh, that um, are that are just really, really great and will give you loads more perspective on the subject. So go to the page for this episode and just dive in, okay? Listen to this, but also check out all the other content that I'll, I'll present to you there. Listen to David Bowie in his own words, okay? And in the words of other people who've also talked about him. So I've been a fan of David Bowie almost all my life. I grew up with his music and it's been with me at various important emotional moments for me. Um, so when did I first hear about, when, when did I first hear David Bowie's music? The first time really that I remember hearing Bowie was quite early on. I must have been about seven or eight years old and I was in the car. Uh, as a child with my dad so it was me in the in the in the passenger seat and my dad uh, driving and it was night time I remember we were driving around somewhere in West London maybe in the suburbs of West London where we used to live I don't know what we'd been doing but it was night time and um, it was just a, a sort of a nice drive with my dad in 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 London and um I don't particularly remember the radio being on, but I remember my I remember Space Oddity came on the radio and my dad must have sort of told me, like, oh, you want to listen to this? This is a really great song. You should listen to this. So we we listened to Space Oddity, which is probably his first big hit, recorded in 1969. Um, and um, even as a kid, I found it fascinating. And it really kind of, grabbed my attention. Um, and it is a fascinating song. It, if you don't know it, then let me tell you that it tells the story of an astronaut on a space mission. Uh, the astronaut goes out alone into space and loses touch with the Earth. There's a technical problem and he 
ends up drifting off into space. The astronaut is afraid and it's scary for him, the idea of being alone, drifting into the void of space. But also it's full of the wonder of the universe, seeing the Earth from a distance and wondering what it's all about. The song is very deep, as as deep as the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. It's it's kind of deep in the same way that that is deep. And I think that film was a direct influence on, on Bowie when he wrote this song. Looking back on it now, for me, and I obviously I'm going to sound a bit pretentious in this episode, but what the hell. Looking back on it now, for me, that car, driving in the car with my dad, it, it was like being in the spaceship, floating through the dark with my dad at the controls, the lights of suburban London street lamps passing overhead. Um also, the song is is about many things. It's about um, space. It's about exiting the materialism of Earth and stuff like that. Uh, but I think also the song is like a metaphor for his career somehow. The astronaut is like Bowie, the artist, and the spaceship is like his work, the different characters he portrayed and in- inhabited and the multimedia structure around him that he built during his career. It's like a cocoon, which he has now departed. And now, after his death, we have just the cocoon, the spacecraft. His life's work is left with us. I'm not sure really what I'm saying here, to be honest with you. I'm probably sounding a bit pretentious, I expect. I'm just trying to, you know, do justice to the subject. Okay. What I mean is that the image of a man in a spaceship traveling through space is a bit like a metaphor for the work of an artist going on a journey. I can't explain it very well. In fact, I don't really think I even understand it fully. It's just a little bit beyond my understanding. It's just slightly out of reach for me, understanding um, what this song, and in fact many of David Bowie's songs, really mean. It's just out of my reach, just somewhere in space. So that's Space Oddity as a kid. Then later, at other times in my life, um, I had other moments with David Bowie's music. I remember that I gave a David Bowie album to my dad for his birthday in, I think, 1987. I must have been 10 years old. I remember the front cover of the album. Uh, And on the front cover, David Bowie was blue. He was it was blue on the album. That's all I remember. It felt very important that I was giving this record to my dad. I think that my mum bought it and I was the one who gave it to him. But I remember looking at the album cover and knowing that my dad wanted to listen to it and I somehow it felt significant that I was giving this to my dad. Then when I was a teenager, I started exploring my parents' record collection. This is probably when I was about 15 or 16 years old. I discovered lots of old music, but it was, it was new to me. In our house, the record player and the vinyl records that my parents owned were in the corner of the living room. And I remember spending quite a lot of time in that corner with the headphones on, exploring the music while my family were doing other things. I would just go through the records and pull them out. And, you know, vinyl records are just amazing. MP3s, even CDs, they just don't have the same appeal. There's something amazing about having the huge... You know, big 12-inch records, and they come in a big 12-inch cardboard sleeve, and that big sleeve is like a work of art. And uh, the the musicians who made those records knew that the album sleeve was like a great 
way of it's like a great visual accompaniment to the music and so they would spend a lot of time and effort making the album covers look good um so i used to you know explore their their my parents records in the living room um and uh, there was one particular album that i discovered and it was called changes one bowie changes one bowie and it was a greatest hits compilation and I think it was released in the mid-1970s. I think it was released in like 1975 or something. And it had all the songs, all the biggest songs, or most of the big songs from his whole career up to that point. It was just a selection of stuff from about 1969 to 1975, uh, which is an amazing period for David Bowie's music. There's a lot more music than that period, but that's certainly a really great introduction. Um, and so it was music from his psychedelic period in his kind of in the time when he was like a hippie in a dress. Uh, there was stuff from the Ziggy Stardust period and then stuff from the uh, Thin White Duke period, which was his kind of soul, his kind of white soul period when he was making soul music. Um, these are all different incarnations of David Bowie's rock star identity. And the thing I remember about this album changes one Bowie was that there was a photo of David Bowie on the front of the album. It was a very simple sleeve. It looked very modern. Um, It was just a black and white photograph. And he looked like a Hollywood movie star from the sort of golden era of Hollywood, you know, from the classic Hollywood period of the 1930s or 40s or something. Uh, I couldn't quite date the photo. It was difficult to put a date to it. I didn't know at the time when I first discovered it that it was uh, made in 1975. So just looking at the photograph, I just couldn't really, it seemed timeless. Normally, I'm, I'm pretty good at predicting the period in which a picture or an album cover was made, or predicting when a record was recorded by listening to it. Usually, I'm quite good at judging those things. But this photograph just looked completely timeless. I couldn't work out when it was taken. Um, so the, the the photo could have come from any time, and that was pretty fascinating. But also, what was striking was that he just seemed so cool and handsome. And I thought, how could I ever be like like him? You know, as a 16-year-old or 15-year-old, you know what it's like at that age. Typically, you're sort of searching for your own identity. Um, and I just looked at the photograph, and I thought, how can I be as cool as that? It just seemed unattainable. Um, how can I take some of that style and confidence and attractiveness and apply it to my own life? That's what I was thinking at the time. He just seemed to be above everything, but not in a bad way, not in an arrogant way. He just seemed to be unattainable. And I thought, how could any girl resist this guy? He's so handsome. And that was very exciting for me because I definitely I definitely fancied girls and I, I just wasn't confident enough to really talk to them. I had no clue about how to talk to girls, let alone how to get them to fancy me. And what David Bowie, I think, showed me, um, um, what, what he showed me about that, about sort of sexuality, I suppose, is that you shouldn't fake it. Just be confident, express yourself, let your natural style come out and don't show any fear and you'll attract girls. That's I, I think that's what I learned from him. Something about just being confident and being yourself. 
because the more I learned about David Bowie, the more I realised that uh, he didn't really care what people thought of him. And that's exactly what make it, made him so attractive. In fact, one of the things that was really attractive about Bowie is that he didn't do things for egotistical reasons. Okay, The, the guy that I saw in the photo was, was distant. He wasn't looking at the camera. He wasn't begging for your attention. He was looking off into the middle distance somewhere. He was thoughtful. His mind was somewhere else. He was he was occupied probably by his work and by many big ideas. And I think Bowie's enthusiasm and his commitment to his work made him as attractive as his physical looks. I think it was about his attitude, but his looks too. He was the complete package, really. So I was convinced that Bowie was like the coolest thing in the world. And this is this is back in the 90s, all right? So this is sort of twenty over 20 years. No, this is not back in the 90s. When was I 16? I'm going to tell you how old I am now. Are you going to work it out? Um, anyway, this is in the 90s, basically, when I was a teenager. Um, and, and yet the album came from the mid-70s. Um, but I was convinced that David Bowie was like the coolest thing in the world. And I asked my mum what she thought of Bowie, and she said that she just found him weird and creepy. I think she said that she liked him and some of his records, but she didn't really fancy him when she was younger or, or even at that time because she found him strange and a bit weird and creepy. It was He wasn't her cup of tea. I was a bit disappointed by that, but I was still convinced that Bowie was the essence of coolness. And what I saw in that picture on that album cover was... I think a lot of what is appealing about David Bowie, his good looks and his cool style, but also his class, his elegance, his mystery and his weirdness. So let me just describe the album cover to you in a bit more detail. You can see it on the page for this episode because I've put a link to it. You can see his face and his shoulders. He's kind of looking to our left, not looking at us, but looking into the distance to, to our left. Uh, it's a black and white photo. His hair is quite short and it's combed back with a slight parting on the side. And his finger is resting on his bottom lip as if he's thinking about something. Uh, after a while, after a while of, after I had been looking at the photograph for a while, I noticed that his eyes were different, which is one of the, the striking things about David Bowie. The pupil of his left eye in the photo is dilated wide and the other pupil is is normal. You know, the pupil is the black, uh, the black circle that you have in the middle of your eye. It's called the pupil. And so his his left eye was fully dilated, like all big, wide, and the other pupil was just normal. And I wondered if that was an effect added to the photo, like that somehow they'd done that on purpose, maybe to hint at the fact that he was high on something. Um, it wasn't obvious to me, but it was fascinating. It was mysterious. An interesting little detail in what was otherwise a minimal album cover. Later on, I learned that actually Bowie had two different eyes. I mean, what I mean by that is that his one of his eyes um, was actually always different to the other one. Okay? I mean, it looked like he had... It, it, it looked like his eyes had different colours, and that the pupil of one was always larger than the, the than the pupil of the other. Apparently, what happened was that when he was fourteen, he had an accident. He had a fight with a uh, another guy over a girl, 
and the other guy punched him in the eye and the punch caused damage to a muscle in his eye. And then since that time, that eye always looked different to the other one. It was always dilated. Not a different colour, just dilated. And that detail, that weird little detail about his appearance was just another part of Bowie's allure. There was just something different about his face. In the photograph, he's thin and he has ridiculously high cheekbones and chiseled features, like a Hollywood movie star from the 1940s. He had classical good looks, but there was also something else about him. The lines on his face, the shape of his nose, there was just something otherworldly and alien about him. Okay, he, he wasn't conventional. He was handsome, but unconventional. He looked a bit like an alien, like he might have come from another planet or he might have come from out of space, out of space. Um, also, he had femininity in his features. And I think that there's nothing wrong with being in touch with your feminine side. His ambiguous gender wasn't the main thing that I liked about him, but for many other teenagers throughout the years teenagers who struggled with their gender identity. David Bowie was someone who gave them self-esteem and self-confidence. He showed that if you felt confused about your gender, that it was nothing to be ashamed of, and that it didn't really matter, that you could just be whoever you wanted to be, and you could do it with pride. As a rock star, David Bowie was a huge ego boost to so many of his fans, and for so many reasons. For me, David Bowie was just cool, confident, and he made really great music. His confidence and his style commanded respect. And I think I grew up a little bit when I looked at that album cover and when I listened to his music. When I when I listened to the record, I took the, the vinyl out of the sleeve and I put it on the record player with the headphones on. My parents had a, an old pair of 1970s headphones. They were like really good quality ones. Um, So I could hear the music really clearly. The first track that I listened to was called Changes, which was originally released in 1971. And there was a scratch on my parents' record. and, And so it used to jump quite a lot during the introduction to the song. And for years, I only ever heard the scratched version. And when I and I got used to listening to the scratched version with the jumps. And when I eventually heard the proper version without the jumps I think on a CD it, it, it didn't seem somehow it didn't seem to be as good it's strange that that I got used to the scratched version so the song would skip a little bit from the intro to the first verse and then to the chorus it would skip a little bit quite quickly even though it was jumping it still sounded good to my ears which to me seems to suggest that there's something there's some quality in David Bowie's music that even though the record was skipping. It still sounded good. Um, it had a piano riff, kind of chunky sounding drums and a good bass line. Those are the things that probably struck me first. Just the general sound of it was appealing. Like it just well produced and it was funky and uh, a well, well put together song. And it sounded amazing in the headphones. Uh, and, you know, the lyrics, Bowie sang words that were, really interesting and that were difficult to understand but sounded sounded sort of moving so here are some of the lyrics to the to the record changes and these are some of the words he sings in that song he said i watch the ripples change their size but never leave the stream 
of warm impermanence. And so the days float through my eyes, but still the days seem the same. And these children that you spit on, as they try to change their worlds, are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Changes. Um, obviously, you have to listen to the record for that to work properly. But as a 15 or 16-year-old, I was quite sure that I was going through changes of my own. And at that time, um, I was feeling, probably for the first time, that I was actually having more complicated feelings than just, I want to play football, or Star Wars is cool, isn't it? It was starting to get a bit more complicated than that. And listening to this song, even though I didn't completely understand the lyrics, I felt that I was suddenly part of something much larger and much deeper. And it felt good. It felt really cool. And it gave me confidence. What it meant to me at the time was that we go through changes in our lives and we we don't always know why they happen but they're significant and they're meaningful and we should be prepared for them and that other people should let us change and we shouldn't try to hold each other back or tell each other what to do, that we should have respect for each other's complex worlds and that we should try and follow our own path. I didn't really understand it all and I still don't really understand it, but it meant a lot to me. I just felt it. Also, as I learned more about David Bowie's music, I knew that he was something of a changeling himself, a changeling, someone who who changes or changed, a changeling. He went through many image changes during his career, especially in the 1970s, and that was and still is fascinating to me. How could someone become all these different people and still hang on to himself? What was identity all about? So let's now have a brief history of David Bowie. So that was my like little personal introduction to to him and his music. But let me just try and take you through a brief history of David Bowie. I say brief history. Uh, God knows how long it's going to take. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll just, as I said, I'll just try and explain it in the best way that I can. So here's a history of David Bowie. So he was born in um, South London in 1947. He's the same age as my dad. Um, and he kind of, I guess he grew up and spent a lot of time in South London. And I, th- I believe Brixton is considered to be where he's from in London. His real name was originally David Jones. And he started uh, in his musical career as Davy Jones. But um, he had to change his name. Another performer had the name Davy Jones. In fact, that was Davy Jones from the Monkees. You know, the group, the Monkees. Uh, they were a sort of um, one of the early manufactured boy bands. The Monkees were basically put together by um, uh, the music industry uh, as a sort of product to capitalise on the success of the Beatles. So I think some American music company uh, just launched the Monkees as like the American Beatles. Do you remember them? Interesting story, the Monkees. Anyway, Davy Jones was... Um, was the British member of the Monkees. And so by the mid-60s, the Monkees were were quite famous. So Bowie, who at the time was Davy Jones, decided to change his name. And he tried a few different names. Um, And it's quite interesting that all the names he chose originally before he decided on David Bowie, in fact, became successful musicians as well. So he changed his name to Tom Jones. 
um, and uh, but decided not to stick with Tom Jones, which is um, which is lucky because, as you know, Tom Jones went on to be a successful singer himself. Um, and he changed his name to David Cassidy. Again, same story. He didn't stick with David Cassidy, uh, which is a good thing because ultimately David Cassidy became another David Cassidy became famous. Um, so Davy Jones, Tom Jones and David Cassidy, all of whom were other musicians later on. It's bizarre, isn't it? And then eventually he stuck with David Bowie, okay, which is good judgment because that is a good name. And it is pronounced Bowie, not Bowie or Bowie. Apparently, David himself used to call, would refer to himself as Bowie. Uh, but you might hear people say Bowie or even Bowie. Um, so he chose Bowie because it was the name of, a, of an American knife. He named himself after a, a type of American knife. And I think he liked the symbolism of that. He was a bit obsessed with America in his youth. And also, I think, probably just the, the symbolism of the knife as well, you know, the edge and whatever. Um, so he grew up in post-war Britain. He was part of the same generation as the Beatles and so many other great artists of his generation. Um, the, the main theme of his childhood seems to have been boredom and dullness. Just living in suburbia was dull. And everything looked the same. It seems to me, looking back on that period in the 1950s, that life in Britain was in black and white, just boring and quiet. You know, basically, the country had had World War II and, you know, the, old, the older generation just wanted peace and quiet after all the hell of World War II. And yet there were lots of kids because of the baby boom because, you know, all the babies that had been born after World War II, there were plenty of kids, so a big younger generation. They didn't want a boring life. They didn't want to have to live in the shadow of World War II. And so there was this feeling in that generation that they were going to live a life. They, they didn't want to be sort of subjected to the dullness of the, of the first half of the century. But they, they wanted to live a real life and explore new ideas and things. Um, so like his peers, Bowie got hooked on American rock and roll music and American rhythm and blues music, um, but also plenty of other forms of music. But I think it was rock and roll and rhythm and blues, uh, which he heard on the radio, and it must have brought some real colour and excitement into his life. America was the place that seemed to be really exciting and interesting for, for many young people uh, at the time. And he got involved later on in the London music scene, but never really found his style or confidence until a bit later on. Uh, there was a boom in youth culture in the 60s, like the mid-60s, which was associated with music and fashion. And then later on, psychedelia. This was like the mid to late 1960s. Drugs and psychedelia were involved, um, drugs like amphetamines for energy, uh, marijuana, and probably LSD for its mind-expanding qualities. Um, I imagine that David Bowie experimented with those things, just like many other musicians of his generation. Uh, Bowie recorded uh, a song, which I've already mentioned, called Space Oddity, and it was released and it became a hit eventually particularly as it coincided with the NASA moon landing in 1969. 
And some people thought of Space Oddity as like a novelty song, just a funny song, just a funny little song about an astronaut going into space. But it was deeper and much more meaningful than that. And it kind of revealed early on some of the depth and the scope of David Bowie's work. Uh, Space Oddity is now a timeless classic, and it's not just about an astronaut. It's an existential comment about the human condition, but it's also a great little pop song that you can just hum along to and that gets stuck in in your head. Um, Despite some success with that song, he still felt unsure of himself as a performer, and he searched for ways to bring new dimensions and confidence to his performance art. Apparently, he started taking risks with his performances and was influenced by many diverse things like avant-garde artists and various forms of theatre like clowning, mime and Japanese uh, Japanese kabuki. Um, You know, Japanese kabuki, it's uh, a very traditional form of Japanese theatre, which involves uh, actors dressing up as different characters and they wear these extravagant Uh, costumes and they often paint their faces white and they form interesting poses and it's uh, like a sort of combination of of drama and mime and clowning so he used all of those influences and brought them together in his rock and roll shows and he collaborated with a guitarist called Mick Ronson who perhaps deserves more recognition than he gets because Mick Ronson is the one who played all of those amazing guitar riffs on a lot of David Bowie's glam rock classics like Rebel Rebel and Ziggy Stardust. Um, So, like, in the early 70s, Bowie sort of uh, became pretty well-known and successful with his form of sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it, kind of pop rock or glam rock. He also came out as gay or bisexual during that period. But it's not clear to all of us if he really was bisexual or if it was all just part of some kind of provocative and experimental performance, both on and off the stage. Nevertheless, he attracted devoted and passionate fans who loved his daring style and his outrageous performances. Um, Being a David Bowie fan at the time was a statement of liberty and freedom. He made it okay, and maybe even cool, to be androgynous, to have an ambiguous sexuality. Um, And he was doing that in the early 70s. If you look at many of the pop stars in the 1980s, like 10 or 15 years later, even after that, some of the Brit pop artists as well, they were basically famous for doing the same thing, for using sort of their gender uh, and their sexuality in a a sort of ambiguous way to create a mystique uh, which is attractive to the fans. But David Bowie was doing it early. Um, He was always ahead of his time. Also, his music in the early 1970s just kicked ass. I mean, his band really was really raunchy and they made really catchy glam rock. It was heavy, fast, funky, romantic and glamorous. Uh, the confidence and mystery that he exuded on stage was like a gift to his fans who all felt empowered by having him as their role model. Um, but he first became a really huge star when he created a character called Ziggy Stardust in around 1972. 
Up until that point, Bowie had not really found his feet as a performer. Apparently, when performing as himself, he just felt shy, which is quite hard to imagine uh, that David Bowie could ever be shy. But apparently it's true. As himself, he felt quite quite shy and, and even private. He didn't really enjoy performing as David Bowie, as himself, but he just felt he just felt a bit awkward, I think. So what he did was to invent a character and then to play that character during his performances. So Ziggy Stardust was just a character that he created, like a character in a movie or in a play, and David Bowie was the actor. People still sometimes refer to Bowie as Ziggy, as if it was his nickname, but that's it wasn't a nickname for Bowie. It was, in fact, an alter ego Okay, so just an alter ego that David Bowie played during the 70s. Um, Ziggy Stardust, the character, disappeared at some point in the mid-1970s when David decided to um, to, to kind of put him to rest. Uh, but becoming Ziggy allowed Bowie to really let go of himself and to become a rock god. And his performances as Ziggy were really extravagant, involving big costume changes, makeup, and all sorts of rude and lewd acts on stage. Apparently, Bowie was Ziggy not only on stage, but also off the stage. So the performance sort of um, bled out into different situations. So he carried on the performance in public appearances, in interviews and so on. So David Bowie was really an actor playing the part of an outrageous rock star. And that's interesting for me because Bowie's acting performance was not just confined to the stage, but it bled out into every aspect of his public life. His fame, his fame was his medium. So he used that medium, fame, very well as an artist to convey his art to us. And he even did that at the very end with his death. It's, um, it's as Ziggy Stardust that Bowie became really well known all over the UK and then in the USA, where he was embraced as a big star by the rock music scene. Apparently, Bowie's main influences for Ziggy Stardust were on one hand... New York-based musicians Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, but also mime artists and Japanese kabuki theatre performers. So these were the influences that he brought together for uh, Ziggy Stardust. Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, the musicians, the sort of avant-garde rock musicians from uh, uh, from New York, and then uh, mime artists, Japanese kabuki theatre performers. Bowie loved the way that Lou Reed... Lou Reed, by the way, was one of the members of the Velvet Underground, maybe one of the most influential rock bands ever. You might know their album cover, uh, which it has a banana on it. It's It was designed by Andy Warhol. It's just a picture of a banana. And it's I think it's the Velvet, Underpr- Velvet Underground and Nico. Great album. And it inspired so many people after it, including David Bowie. Um, so... Um, he loved the way that Lou Reed managed to combine avant-garde art. And when I say avant-garde art, I mean art that is really abstract and not of the mainstream and seems to be confusing and doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. You know, really abstract stuff. So Lou Reed managed to combine that spirit with the spirit of pop and rock music. Um, And also Bowie loved the outrageousness and the energy 
the f- the pure force of nature that was Iggy Pop, and also the mystery and the magic of the Kabuki theatre tradition, and all of it combined to create something really extraordinary in Ziggy Stardust. These incredibly theatrical live shows with stomping fast rock music and avant-garde lyrics. Um, and so Bowie released an album um, called Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And it's now a classic. Part of Bowie's genius was always that he could take very weird and abstract art and bring it to a very wide mainstream audience via good old fashioned rock and roll and pop music. That's the genius of pop, really. A pop song is so short and so simple. Just three minutes with a couple of verses, a chorus and a bridge section. Played on the radio for mass appeal. Full of catchy melodies and instant appeal. A good pop song, you only need to hear it once and it's, it has got you. You know, it has to be quick, it needs to be efficient and it has to be modern. Now, Bowie, like all the other great pop stars, used this medium to deliver some very powerful and clever ideas. Um, David Bowie's um, pop songs were not just disposable trash. Um, They had deep, hidden meanings that are hard to understand, but which really stand up under scrutiny. Um, So in a three-minute song, he managed to pack in all sorts of meaning, basically. And he wasn't just lucky, like some artists who make one or two, may, you know, maybe one or two hit records in their career. David Bowie had hit songs throughout his career and his greatest hits albums that you can now buy stretch over two or sometimes three CDs in their collections. Um, and um, he really knew what he was doing. And his music is pure pop art. So he was a mainstream pop act, and he certainly became a mainstream pop act later on in the 80s. But he was also a radical avant-gardist, using pop music to deliver abstract ideas directly into people's everyday lives. Usually, abstract art is to be found in in, in, in places that are difficult to access for everyone. For example, abstract art might be found in galleries. And let's face it, not enough ordinary people go to galleries, you know. People tend to stay at home, they watch TV, they go about their daily lives. They don't, on a daily basis, interact with avant-garde art, okay. But through his records and videos and other projects, David Bowie managed to bring that stuff right to the hearts and minds of a massive audience. And in that way, he's more, he's way more of a successful artist than so many others. People would play his songs on the radio. He appeared on Top of the Pops on the BBC, which was a very mainstream show, and he brought into the homes of normal people some of the craziest and most over-the-top concept art, simultaneously fascinating and frightening the nation. He sang a song called Starman on the BBC, dressed in a bright green costume with his hair dyed bright red, uh, Starman seems to be about an alien, which uh, an alien who wants to come to Earth uh, to visit us, but he's frightened of how the humans will receive him. It seems to many, and it still seems that way, that Bowie himself was the alien. 
Um, so what did Ziggy Stardust look like? Well, he had many different uh, appearances, but probably the most striking thing about him was that he was so slim. He had his pale white skin and this bright orange, bright red hair, which was sort of in this, I don't know how to describe it really, this big, it was big and spiky and um, uh, it kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a, a kind of like a big spiky cake on his head with a mullet at the back. Uh, all right. Now, you, probably the most famous image of David Bowie or one of the most famous ones is his face with the red hair and a lightning strike across his face, you know, a lightning bolt across his face. Um, that may be one of the most famous images. Now, that's not Ziggy Stardust. That's another character that David Bowie used to play. I think that character is is Aladdin Sane. But Ziggy looked a, a, quite a lot like Aladdin Sane. There are so many changes to his identity, starting with Ziggy Stardust, and then he, he sort of morphed into... Aladdin Sane, and then Aladdin Sane morphed into another character. These interesting changes that happened. I remember watching a movie about Ziggy Stardust uh, live in concert with my brother. It must have been the mid-90s, mid, mid to late 90s. My brother was at university. He'd moved away from home, and it was his first year, and I went to visit him. I must have been about 17, I think. And I, so I stayed uh, with my brother in his new flat. And on TV that evening, we watched this concert of Ziggy Stardust. And the thing that amazed me was just the, the, the intensity of the performance and the, the level of theatre and the level of spectacle and the level of adoration and crazy sort of worship that the fans had for him. He was an incredibly charismatic and mysterious superstar. And all these women in the audience were just absolutely wild about him. Um, it was really impressive. So Ziggy, Stardust's, Ziggy Stardust was David Bowie's way to use celeb... Um, okay, it was... Ziggy Stardust was uh, David Bowie's way to celebrate rock and roll and also comment on all of its conventions. He was sort of doing rock and roll, but making a comment about rock and roll at the same time. Again, he knew what he was doing. He wasn't just aiming to get as many fans as possible, but he wanted his fans to really think about what was going on in the live show, in the music and in life in general. He really encouraged his audience to use their own intelligence and to interpret his work in their own way. I feel a great amount of respect uh, from the artist to me. I feel like he respects me and us as, a, as his audience when I listen to the music and watch his performances. I don't feel like he's patronising me or being arrogant or treating me like I'm a stupid consumer. I just feel like he's doing the performance, but that some part of him is completely conscious of what he's doing objectively and that he's got no ego about it. Apparently, According to the things I've heard and read about him, Bowie was a really nice and down-to-earth person. In interviews, he was always very intelligent, articulate, sweet and funny. Apparently, he was also quite a private man. So the characters he played in his songs and on stage are really different to the character of the artist himself, which again is impressive, the fact that he was so nimble that he could become these different people and then go back to being himself again, it's impressive. It's what actors do. The greatest actors do those sorts of things. You think about people like Heath Ledger, who performed as the Joker, 
Everyone raves about what an amazing performance that was. David Bowie was doing that stuff in the 70s. I'm sure that Heath Ledger was influenced by David Bowie. And all of the other method actors that we know. You know, people like Robert De Niro and, you know, more modern ones like Chris, Christian Bale, uh, for example. All of these people do the same kind of thing that Bowie was doing then, which is just inhabit and live as a character in order to bring more depth to a performance. Um, so uh, Bowie made a few albums using the Ziggy Stardust persona, and he toured America and moved there, I think. Uh, he recorded a couple of other albums as Ziggy, but the character did change bit by bit with with a slightly different look emerging over time. He released a, a couple of albums with the Ziggy Stardust persona, I believe, um, and those albums are absolute bona fide rock classics. I'm talking about albums like Diamond Dogs and, of course, Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. Uh, I think um, I think by the mid-1970s, his life was moving extremely quickly, and that is evident in his music and his image. He went through so many different changes during that period and produced some wildly inventive yet very accessible music. Eventually, he killed off Ziggy Stardust, and in fact, you can see video footage of him announcing the end of Ziggy Stardust during a live concert. He says to the audience, he says something like, I just wanted to say to everyone, this is the last time that we will ever be performing in public again. And you, you can hear the, uh, the audience, um, s- some people in the audience sort of shocked. They're screaming and gasping and shouting. They seem devastated. He says, this is our last live concert ever. And you can actually hear the audience react. But he didn't quit, of course. He just came back with a new image and a new character. He he ended Ziggy Stardust. That kind of story was done. And he brought a a new character into it. And that character was called Aladdin Sane. That's the one with the uh, lightning bolt in front of him. Aladdin, like the the story of Aladdin. And Sane, like like, uh, not crazy. But it's interesting, that name, because it's a double meaning, isn't it? A lad insane, and also a lad insane, meaning a a, a boy who is crazy. Um, so a lad insane, he looked a bit like Ziggy, but he was darker somehow in spirit, and even more mysterious. And then within just a year or two, Bowie changed again. So we had Ziggy Stardust, then a lad insane, and then a character uh, which was eventually called the Thin White Duke. The thin white duke wore sharp suits and he had his hair combed back, kind of slicked his hair back. And he used to walk around with a, with a walking stick, a cane, and sometimes he wore a hat. He was extremely debonair and suave looking, yet also very thin and bony, you know, because he was so thin at that time because of his lifestyle. Again, his combination of, his, his combination of handsomeness, androgyny and alien weirdness gave him an allure and a charisma like nobody else. In fact, the picture that I saw on that album cover in my parents' living room um, when I was a teenager, that was a photograph of the Thin White Duke. That was Bowie in his Thin White Duke period, that kind of timeless classic sort of uh, style that he had at the time. Um, Then he was influenced by the soul and funk musicians of New York in the mid-1970s. 
I can't really explain all the influences and all the details of his different clothing choices, but essentially he had his own style and it influenced a lot of fashion that followed him. I think he had a huge influence on the styles of the 80s and beyond. A lot of what musicians and fashion designers did in the 1980s with, you know, the the makeup and the androgyny and stuff, Bowie'd already done it fully in the 70s. So basically Bowie created the 1980s. Um I think the Thin White Duke is is my favourite David Bowie period, although I love all of his changes. Uh, but he was called the Thin White Duke because he was thin, obviously, due to his lifestyle. He was white, obviously, again, but this was even more evident because of the fact that at that time he, he was playing soul and funk music, which was a, a musical genre associated with a black audience in, in America in particular. So compared to many of the black artists in his band and the black people in many of his audiences at the time, he looked really white. Uh, And he was very pale anyway during that period. So I think that he was pretty much the whitest dude on the planet probably at that time. But he was playing what was considered to be quite deeply black sounding music with a lot of soul. So it's an interesting combination, this white, this thin white guy playing this kind of black music um, was, again, another interesting sort of um, combination. And for me, the music is the main thing that I like about David Bowie during this period. I generally love funk and soul music from the 70s. It's my favourite kind of music. And I love that kind of music, regardless of who is playing it, whether they're black or white, it doesn't really matter to me. In fact, to be honest, I prefer to have my music in in full colour, please. I, I like to have the full colour spectrum in my music. Uh, black, white, and everything in between. Purple, brown, yellow, green, pink. If it's a colour, basically, I want it in my music. So no black and white music, please. So Bowie's funk period is really great. My favourite album from that time is called Young Americans, and it's got tracks on it like the title track, Young Americans, and, and a track called Fame, which uh, they're, they're, they're deeply groovy, they're tough sounding, and yet they're smooth, soulful dance tracks. Um, he collaborated with John Lennon on the, the album, on the song Fame, which is amazing. It just sends my imagination over the edge, that does. Just imagine that, John Lennon hanging out with David Bowie in the studio and recording an al- a song together, it's a funky dance classic um, with John Lennon of the Beatles. And that's a song that uh, I listened to. I remember hearing that song in nightclubs and stuff and dancing to it with girls and really getting down to it. So there's another moment where David Bowie's music was in my life. Hello, everyone. That's the end of part one of this fairly long and slightly self-indulgent podcast episode about one of my musical heroes. Uh, What are you thinking? What's going on in your mind at the moment? I wonder what kind of uh, listener you are, what what category you fall into, Um, like the categories I described at the beginning. Are you one of those listeners who is a big fan of of Bowie and his work, or did you not really know that much about him? Um, Is or was Bowie famous and popular in your country, or... Is he not really that well-known where you come from? And also, generally, what do you think about Bowie's life and career and his music and the things that I've said in this episode? 
You can leave your comments, as usual, at the bottom of the page um, where you'll find all of this stuff on, on teacherluke.co.uk. And uh, as I said before, don't uh, forget to check out some of the other content that I've shared on this page, including interviews with the man himself uh, and some documentary stuff and other little fun videos that you can check out. I really do recommend that you listen to David Bowie talking. Um, in interviews because he was a very um, captivating person to listen to, very charming person and he had a very nice voice. He spoke with a really nice, clear uh, British accent. Um, So check it out. Okay, right. So that's the end of part one. Speak to you again in part two. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.